For many people, sports are an escape from the rest of the world. But can we really separate sports from the rest of society? And do we want to? We could take it slowly. Oh, we could get insane. No one ever got anywhere by playing it safe. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with some of the guest speakers from the recent Rosenfield Symposium here at Grinnell. The Off the Field Symposium explored the inextricable relationship between sports and politics, economics, and society. For this episode, we'll talk with Juliette McCurr, the Sports of the Times columnist for the New York Times, about her experience covering stories that transcend the field of sports, such as workplace harassment, sex abuse, brain trauma, doping, and international corruption. Then we'll talk with Lewis Moore, Associate Professor of History at Grand Valley State University, about athlete activism, past, present, and future. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Before we begin, a warning. The first part of this show involves sensitive content, including discussion of sexual abuse and suicide, and may not be suitable for all listeners. When Juliet McCurr started investigating a story about NFL cheerleaders, she told her editor she never expected to be covering the cheerleader beat. He said, you're not. You're on the workplace harassment beat. With stories filling the headlines lately about sexual abuse and harassment in gymnastics and other sports, I asked her when the Me Too movement made the leap from Hollywood to sports. It had to have been the Larry Nasser case because that really happened at the beginning of this year during his sentencing hearing when there were more than 150 women lined up, women and girls really, because there was a girl as young as 15 years old who would give an impact statement. They were lining up to face Larry Nasser and tell him exactly what they thought of him, tell him to go to hell or whatever, other things, nice things they had to say to him. They said that he wasn't going to crush them and that they were brave and that they would move on with their life despite everything he did to them. Um, in some cases, it was pretty sad because one one woman said that his her father had killed himself after um, a long time of her saying, you know, Larry Nasser is has been abusing me. Larry Nasser has been abusing me. The father didn't believe her when he finally figured out that it was true. Um, he took his own life. So wow. I think he had other issues going on there, but it was obviously the the just the whole idea of these women facing their accuser. Um, sexual abuse victims really don't do that very often, especially at, on this magnitude. And, uh, and that was a huge moment, not only for the Me Too movement, but for, for women in general, women who have been... Um, abused in all kinds of ways, finally standing up for themselves. And they're hopefully not going to be as not going to be afraid anymore, or at least as afraid to speak up if if they've been hurt. These issues, obviously, I mean, with the Larry Nassar scandal, some of that stuff goes back to like the 90s. He's been doing it for a long time. Um, And some of these other issues as well have been just kind of been entrenched in these sports. What's kept them from being talked about until now? I think that people have been, the thing is, this is the crazy thing, is people have been talking about sexual abuse in in gymnastics, especially. I think there was a book that came out, must have been in the mid-90s, I should know this. It's called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, where a, a columnist for the San Francisco paper, Joan Ryan, had written this book about all the abuses in gymnastics and, and figure skating. It was basically 
almost a mirror of what's been going on today. I don't think she talked about sexual, she did not talk about sexual abuse in that book, but it was everything else. It was uh, eating disorders that led to anorexia, this daily abuse at these gyms that led to, to suicide, all these crazy things that were happening in gymnastics um, that was a big deal when she wrote about it. Everybody denied it. Even people in gymnastics denied it because they want to stay in gymnastics, I suppose. Parents didn't want to acknowledge it. They kept putting their kids in sports in it. And I'm not sure why nobody stepped up in this Larry Nasser case, but people knew or, or suspected what he was doing. People had gone to Michigan State officials to say he had abused them, and nobody ever did anything there. They just buried it. In the wake of these scandals, do you see anything changing in the sport of gymnastics? I mean, I know like uh, basically everybody on the board of USA Gymnastics has resigned, but do you think that there's going to be tangible changes moving forward in the sport itself? Was it just, just now it's not last week, it's the week before they hired someone to be in charge of the elite development of the women, which is basically someone who's in charge of little girls coming up and becoming Olympic champions. And this woman uh, two years ago had defended Larry Nasser, <laughs> said he he's really great, he's always helped our girls, I'm sure he didn't do this. And so uh, when you ask me if USA Gymnastics is going to be changing anytime soon, I, I don't think they can. I actually don't think so. If they need to be prodded into making all these changes, like changing the board of directors, kicking out their CEO, they needed the USOC to basically tell them to do these things. Um, and then they hired this woman who was a Larry Nasser defender, and then she and then she got fired a couple of days later uh, because the USOC told them to fire her. I, I think that I don't expect anything to change in gymnastics anytime soon. Uh-huh. Um. So how do you see your role as a journalist when you're reporting on these stories? Um, you want to see change, obviously, and you'd like to see justice brought to bear, especially when there's victims involved. But you're also trying to report the stories and maintain integrity. Uh, do you see a, a tension between the two ever? Well, when I started writing about Larry Nasser, I was a columnist. And right now I'm transitioning back to being an investigative reporter, which I like a little bit better. And I'm not sure if that's going to stick or if I'm going to go back to being a columnist. But uh, but as a columnist, I can say certain things. We Like I called for the USA Gymnastics Board of Directors to be to be ousted. And a couple of days later, it happened. So I'm not sure. They probably didn't even read my story, but <laughs> it made me feel good to cause an effect. Let's say they did. Let's say they did. <laughs> my mom says it's total, it was totally because of me. But um, uh, but as a, as a regular reporter, like investigative reporter, we worked on um, a story earlier this year that showed uh, the time that USA Gymnastics fired Larry Nasser because he he was found to or he was suspected of being a, a serial molester. They fired him, and then it was more than a year later where he was finally fired from Michigan State University. So in that time, we reported that more than four dozen women and girls as young as eight years old had been molested by Larry Nasser. So that's more of an investigative story and my I feel like my job as a journalist is to is to point these things out, point out the people who have been hurt, talk to them and get their stories. I've talked to many of these survivors who who have I mean their stories are um, are pretty heartbreaking not only what Larry Nasser did to them but the aftermath which is you know, thoughts of suicide, lots of eating disorders and self-esteem issues, lots of lots and lots of cutting um, and, uh, and lots of depression and anxiety. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's more, th these effects on these girls won't be known unless a journalist like me tells the story. And I find that really an honor to be able to tell their story and just to show 
officials who have the power to keep these people away from little girls uh, that they need to be doing their job. Yeah. You reported a story about Ryan Hoffman, for example, the former North Carolina football player who had CTE uh, and also struggled with mental illness and addiction and, and died a few years ago. Um, while football as a whole is taking steps to address concerns about concussions, many people are still concerned that the issue is not being taken seriously enough. You've also talked about the flip side of this, how football can really bring people together and be a source of hope, like in the community of Madison, Indiana. With those two kind of conflicting stories in mind, kind of, how do you see football moving forward? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, with obviously when I was done with the Ryan Hoffman story, which was, oh man, it was really intense for me to report, not only the first time where I went down to basically find him in, in Florida. He was homeless. I had to figure out where he was and tra- finally track him down because he didn't have a consistent cell phone number. He kept losing his burner cell phones, mm-hmm. kept losing even the ones that... that um, were um, sent to him by his mom. Uh, when I was reporting that story, it was intense just hearing his uh, how his mental health was, just how he was living day to day. He was living in shacks or you know not eating very much and doing drugs and all these things. It was it was very very emotional to report that story and then to come back. Um, I think it was about a half a year later to hear he got hit hit by a car and he he had meth in his system and um, you know he died alone. Uh, it was it was really intense. So after that, you know, if I had a kid, would he be playing football? I seriously don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think I'm. Uh, I'm a very big football fan uh, because of that. But turn around and do the story about Madison, Indiana, a community struggling not only with um, a huge opioid problem, but a, a huge suicide problem. It's three or four times higher suicide rate than the rest of the country, which is amazing for for this tiny little town and tiny little county. Um, everybody knows somebody who's died, and a lot of those people are are kids and young adults. Uh, for that coach there in that in that town to be able to keep kids on his team, to to get them excited about football and keep them off the streets, well, not even in the streets, they're doing drugs in their in their homes, but to keep them focused and and to keep their self esteem up is um, and that's a very important story too. I just it's it's hard for me to. It's hard for me to think about your very difficult question, and I'm really upset that you asked me it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's something that I've always thought about, too, kind of reconciling uh, what I've always thought is, like, that kind of intangible, like, something about sports that just, like, it's hard It's hard for me to put into words, but there's also the, the other side, which maybe is just um, society's issues creeping in on, on what is not a wholly separate entity, which is sports, you know, as you, as you talked about today, it's not, it's not separate. One time I think when I was in Madison, I thought what sport can replace football, you know, so they don't have to have these head injuries. Um, and I would like to say that the Madison football team had concussion protocols out the wazoo. They were at one point, they had like uh, seven guys out of the game because they were watching them for concussions. They did a very good job at, uh, at safeguarding that and keeping an eye on that. And I thought, can can I actually see this, these guys playing soccer Uh or, um, you know they can't even they can't even do they can't even play soccer. It won't be a replacement. They can't play baseball. It won't be a replacement because there's just not enough spots on the team. Uh-huh. You know football, you can have you know so many guys on the team. You can yeah. take so many guys and fo- refocus them and and be there for them. And that so it's hard to find a replacement for football that might you know might be hurting some kids in the end. It's kind of a it's a catch twenty two. I don't have the answer for. Yeah. Um, so 
It's kind of a similar question, and maybe you don't have a a good answer for this one either, but I'll shoot anyway. Um, so you've covered sports for a long time, and you've obviously covered your fair share of, of scandals, but also um, you know inspiring stories that showcase the power of sports. In both cases, it's evident that the stories are about much more than just sports, but which one of those stories is the reason that you got into covering sports? The inspirational ones or the ones where you're uncovering injustices? Hmm, that's it. Um, I think I did not even know what I wanted to do. I just thought I was going to travel the world for free, and uh, that was cool. That is <laughs> I was cool. Like, I don't even know. I mean, I, I was, I hadn't, I didn't do, I wasn't like I wasn't on the newspaper in my college. I, right. um, I had written a lot when I was a kid, but I wanted to be a lawyer because my parent, you know, my parent, we came from um, a blue collar family, and I thought I should be a lawyer. So, uh, so I really didn't have a plan. But, uh, you know, the stories where I look back, it's uh, I think the emotional stories are um, are important to tell because you're telling somebody's story that changed somebody's life. But the ones that change rules or, or laws and things like that, those are those are very important. Those who save other people from suffering, like the Larry Nasser case or um, maybe some of the CTE stories where maybe a kid won't play football. If he gets three concussions, maybe he'll decide to stop if he's read one of my stories. I mean, there have been a lot of those where I've, um, I felt pretty good about myself. Uh, you know, I, not, not to pat myself on the back because in the Ryan Hoffman case, he called me from rehab saying that I'd saved his life. And I thought it's the best moment of my life as a journalist. I mean, I, I live to try to help people. Um, and then for, you know, several months later for him to, to, uh, you know, to pass away by himself without any ID in an ambulance where nobody even knew his name to say goodbye was, that's not how it ends. No. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an important job. Um, with all these issues intertwining themselves in sports from society, do you think that sports provides a particular angle of analysis that can't be gleaned from other perspectives? Or do you think it's simply that we, you know, lend a lot of importance to sports? And so when these stories come up in the context of sports, they're just more prevalent or more, you know, they have more traction? I think more people pay attention to sports than anything else. If it's like something that crops up in business, it's really cutting off half of the population who doesn't re- doesn't read the business section or doesn't really care about business. I mean, the good thing about sports is it attracts people of all different walks of life from all different backgrounds and financial means, and that's why it's such a good meeting place to discuss these things. I mean, we were just talking about a, the Serena Williams story um, just a little while ago, uh, debating whether she was right or wrong in her, uh, I don't want to call it a, a tantrum, but it sort of was a tantrum against the uh, umpire. Everybody has a different thought about it, people who didn't even watch tennis, and so it, it's nice to hear all these people talking about an issue and, you know, whether it's equality or racism, and it all started with just a tennis match. Yeah. Um, one of the quotes in your article about the, the Madison football team really stuck with me since I read it. The woman in the diner, uh, when you first got there, who had recently lost her son to suicide, told you, we need your help. And I'd like to, to echo those sentiments and thank you for, for continuing to tell these stories and coming on the show today, Juliet. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thanks. Juliet McCurr is an award-winning columnist for The New York Times. She's also the author of Cycle of Lies, the prominent biography of Lance Armstrong's demise. You can find links to her recent work on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. 
Recognize that tune? Did you stand up, hand over your heart, and sing? For our listeners driving in the car, I really hope you stayed in your seat buckled up. For liability reasons, I should mention, Grinnell College is not responsible for any injuries or intense feelings of patriotism that may result from listening to this podcast. Regardless of how you feel about the NFL protests started by Colin Kaepernick, the protests have undeniably ignited discussion and debate. With football season in full swing, the issue is on many people's minds. Joining me to talk about this and other activism in the world of sport is Lewis Moore, Associate Professor of History at Grand Valley State University. I asked him how today's athlete activists differ from those in the past, like Muhammad Ali, in terms of the methods of protest, public reaction, and goals. I think the, the number one difference between now and back then is that there are more black women involved. Um, and what I, when I tell people this is, there wasn't a lot of black women athletes in the 1960s and, and say 50 years ago when track athletes are talking about boycotting the Olympics, the black women weren't, weren't asked. And, and the difference today is that they're not being they're not waiting to be asked. Right. Their they're WNBA players were on the forefront two years ago, even before Cap Neal. They were talking about Black Lives Matter. They were getting uh, suit or fined by their league and they were having blackouts with the media representation. You have Serena. Uh, before uh, not only talking about equal pay, but she's talked about Black Lives Matter in the past. So you have women on the on the front line. Um, I think the other thing that's different is just how you get that message out there. Um, back then, you'd have to have a prominent voice and have that um, interview with the Sports Illustrated or with the National Magazine, um, and they would only let a few people speak. So if you're looking at, for instance, leading up to the 68 Olympics and the boycotts, there's only a few athletes that get to speak, even though the majority of them are saying, hey, we're thinking about not going. And then there's obviously Harry Edwards. Today, you just hop online. Um, you say something on social media, and, and you have that platform. So I think that's a major difference. The other thing is just the way they protest. And, and back then, you'd, you'd have to say something or be very vocal, uh, maybe make a stand like John Carlson, Tommy Smith. But what you see today is simply wearing a T-shirt for some people is enough. So a couple of years ago, you'd have NBA players wear I Can't Breathe shirts, and they got labeled activist athletes. Yeah, social media definitely changes the dynamic of activism. But do you think it makes it harder for athletes to control their message? Like with Kaepernick, the goal of his protest had nothing to do with the anthem or the flag, yet some people still frame the debate that way. Yeah, yes and no. And I think historically, if you look at it, I think the message always gets shaped, right? And, and uh, I'm on social media a lot. And, and a couple of weeks ago for the anniversary of the March on Washington, which was um, August 28th. So I did this August 28th and, and I posted an old editorial from a southern newspaper about the March on Washington. And then this this newspaper writer, this editorialist, was just going against King and the civil rights movement and saying that they're really being disruptive, they're a problem, whereas obviously King was talking about nonviolence, he's talking about peace and justice, but opposition purposely took that message and distorted it, right? And 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 I've posted stuff on King after his assassination. There's a newspaper um, in El Paso, I believe, I want to say it's the El Paso Times, the day before his assassination, obviously they didn't know he was going to be assassinated, but they have a political cartoon of King with a gun in his hand, essentially saying he's the reason why you have these riots in, in Memphis. So they painted him as a black militant, right? So even though King was saying all this stuff about nonviolence and peace, the media takes it and runs. And we see the same thing with the Kaepernick protests, right? The media and, and, and other people took it and, and made it about the anthem and made it about the flag when it was really 
really about police brutality. Now, the other thing that Cap could have done better, however, is that he's really been silent for a while. And so when you're silent, that leaves that vacuum open. And, and, and that's where that a lot of it was filled in with, with that nonsense. When he wasn't speaking intentionally, doing it in interviews, once you do that, you have new leadership, you have new opposition, and he never really did a good job of, of fighting back. That's a good point. Um, what do you think today's athletes can learn from the past history of successful activists? Um, and I hate to be cliche on this uh, with uh, Kaepernick's uh, Nike ad about sacrificing and everything like that. But when we look at the athletes of the past who, who were activists, they, they had nothing. There's no guaranteed contract. There's not a lot of money. John Carlson, Tommy Smith were amateur athletes. And so they literally risked it all. Ali lost three years of his career. Um, other football players who protested, a very famous protest, um, the 65 boycott in, of New Orleans All-Star Game of AFL players, these guys could have been cut the next day. Um, but, but for them, protesting racism meant that much. And I think if you're an athlete and you're, you're on the fence about whether I should do it or not, maybe I only have a three-year career, just know that, that people risked a lot. Um, and, and, and I think they should be comfortable in protesting if they truly believe that something's an injustice to use their platform. Do you think certain sports leagues are more likely to be the focus of protests than others? I'm thinking about baseball and football, for example which have both been, quote-unquote, America's game at one point or another, do you think they have a more conservative bent to the culture of the game or maybe the fans of the sport that makes them more likely to be the locus of protests or pushback against protests? Yeah, and I, I would think even more um, base, yeah, baseball, football, and hockey because, uh, what's his name, J.T. Brown, when he uh, raised his fist, he was on the lightning, and he got death threats. I, I believe now he plays for, for Minnesota now. Um, but it's just how we see those games as on the one hand right baseball we we use baseball to tell a story about democracy and integration via jackie robinson so you'll get that pushback to say wait a minute this is america's game well how could baseball be a problem and football is i think its fandom is very conservative or, or the fandom that we get to see and so it tends to to be the case that they might have there might be more backlash um the NBA, I, I wouldn't say the NBA would, would be able to kind of withstand some of the protests, but we've seen their players like LeBron be front and center, D. Wade, Chris Paul, and, and, you know, their numbers are fine. Let me throw a couple statistics at you. According to the Real GM, the NFL's players are 70% black, yet its fans are 83% white and 75% of head coaches and 100% of team CEOs and presidents are white men. On the other hand, the NBA has the highest percentage of young fans and black fans. What do you make of those numbers? I think it says something that that we look at NFL as a very white fan base. And I think when the NFL is figuring out whether they should, what should they should do with the, with the protest during the national anthem, that comes to mind. They see themselves as having white fans and they leave out the other black fans. Um, and I think part of that, too, is just the cost of the game. Like It's very expensive to, to go, even though they're in cities where there is a large black population, it's very expensive to go to the game. And, and so I think a lot of fans are, are turned off from that. Um, basketball just does a better job also of understanding that it's a black league. Um, and I think because it started out as a black league, like by the 1960s, it was more than 50% black. So if we think about it, 
they integrate in the early 1950s within a decade it's more than 50 percent black and as much as they tried to have quotas on their team um i think the league got the message rather quickly that that they're a black league and, and they have to sell that now they've had some problems right trying to um be that black league but by the time you get to the late 80s early 90s and as scholars suggest, they they kind of merge themselves with hip hop. I think they embrace that. They embrace their blackness a lot better than the NFL has. Thinking historically about protests, do people ever really approve of the way athletes protest? No, they don't. And I and I think that's we'll get back to King here. I mean, one of his my favorite writings that he's, he's done, and certainly a lot of other people's, is Letter from Birmingham Jail. And and he writes that in 1963 when he's in jail in Birmingham. And the reason why he writes that is that white moderates, right, uh, religious leaders attack him and for, for protesting in Birmingham, for bringing all this trouble to Birmingham. And he sits down and he writes about, about you know, he says that, that famous quote, what, in uh, the whole injustice, uh, where is injustice everywhere? Or, but he, he uses, my favorite part about that is that he uses that time to, to go after the moderate, to go after the people who say, why don't you just wait? Why don't you just protest a different way? And we see that still today with the NFL protests. Why don't you, why do you have to do it during a national anthem, right? When else do you want these people to do it? You're not going to listen to them any other time. And so that's the beauty of the cat protest is that it forces us right there, right on the spot to deal with it. And I think that's why there's that backlash because for the first time in a lot of people's lives, they have to deal with the reality that not only is that, that there's racism, but the criminal justice system is, is racist and it's brutal to a lot of people. And, and we don't like to think about that in America. The whole point of the symposium that we're having here at Grinnell is to question the maybe false distinctions and the lines that we draw between sports and society. Is there a reason to draw lines between sports and society at all? No, I mean, it's part of it. Um, And I think what we do, though, is that for the longest time and post-World War II America looks to sports as as something that we want to measure up to be, especially in this kind of post Jackie Robinson era. And that allows us not to really wrestle with some of the racism that we see on a daily basis. So we could celebrate Jackie Robinson as this great figure, but at the same time, ignore the racism of him having to go play in the South or ignore the racism of the fact that people who look like him can't get jobs outside of baseball. People who look like him can't move into a white neighborhood. Um, before we came here, I was going through some research as I do in my office time and so it's the 50th anniversary of the cardinals and the tigers playing in the world series and and that's one of these world series where everybody says it's it's great for the city of detroit because in 67 they went through a a really bad rebellion um and and they lost their chances essentially to be um in the world series the last game of the year but everything that you see about the world series in 68 when they win it it's about healing the city, bringing it back together. There's a black writer, Doc Young, who there's a famous moment when they clinched the, in uh, their playoff berth. Uh, McLean, who's their star pitcher, and Willie Horton, who's their star black player, embrace each other. And he calls it, it's like that Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson moment. Um, and everybody's getting together. And and in St. Louis, after game one, Bob Gibson destroys the Tigers. He's one of the greatest pitchers ever. And on the headlines, is like Bob of the local newspaper, Bob Gibson for mayor. 
after the series, right, Detroit goes back to being Detroit. Detroit continues in its white flight, right, where white folks are leaving. There's all these studies about race and the race problems in Detroit, and, and we know what happens with Detroit. Bob Gibson, who was a hero in game one, who pitched three games to the series and was just awesome throughout the whole series, he gets hate mail, right? He gets death threats. He gets letters calling him the N-word simply because he, they lose in game seven, right? So it kind of gets to that point, what you were saying, where on the one hand, sports is great, and we could tell all these stories about people from classes and different races and religions getting together. But at the same time, life is life, and, and there are these problems with race in America. There are these problems with class with America, and, and sports doesn't make them go away. What we do with sports is just use that good stuff to hide that bad stuff. Is there a difference between athlete activism that focuses on the sport itself as compared to protests that focus on societal issues more broadly and use sports as simply a medium or platform? No, because, I, I, you know, because I think when activists, athletes are, are dealing with the problems of sport, um, let's say labor issues in the WNBA, that mirrors society, right? If we're looking at these the, lately, right, we've seen a lot of WNBA players talking about the disparity in, in, in pay and, and the percentages that they get. That conversation is part of our conversation of what we talk when we talk about women and pay. Um, the Serena dealing with sexism, uh, whether we agree with her or not in tennis, is a conversation that we have um, in society. Um, the gymnast talking about a sexual abuse in the Me Too movement mirrors the conversation that we have in society. So by dealing with issues in your sport, you are also having an impact on society and society is having an impact on you, right? It's I don't think it's a coincidence that the Me Too movement is happening at the same time as what's going down in, in Michigan State with all that nasty stuff. I believe um, Nasir is, is going to be sent to prison for life. Um, Michigan State winds up having to pay almost 400 women $500 million. Like, it's a very nasty situation. And it happens at the same time we're having a national conversation about uh, the Me Too movement and, and sexual abuse and, and inappropriate um, actions during work. The anthem issue has definitely been the focus of much of the talk about athletes and activism. And with the NFL season just starting up again and Nike recently releasing their ad campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick, do you think the anthem issue will remain the focus, and do you think that's a good thing? I, I think it's a good thing if it remains the focus as long as our conversation is about what the initial uh, protest was, uh, police brutality, the criminal justice system. I think what happens, though, like we've talked about before, is that when that conversation gets hijacked and it becomes about the military or it becomes about patriotism, um, disrespecting the flag, I think that's unhealthy. Uh, that's not what the conversation should be about. We should, as a society, focus on civil rights, focus on justice, right, to, to improve ourselves as a society. So I hope it doesn't go away. So both Kaepernick and his former teammate Eric Reed have filed grievances against the NFL, and Kaepernick's case has moved forward into discovery, so we will see where that goes. But do you have optimism for athletes like Colin Kaepernick? that their protests will yield results. I'm not sure what success looks like for him, whether it's monetary compensation or the chance to play in the NFL again. But the title of your book, We Will Win the Day, leads me to believe you have some degree of optimism. Can you confirm or deny? 
<laughs> I'll confirm. Look, I don't think Cap's ever going to work in football again. And and as as much as he says he wants to, I'm I'm not. I'm just not sure it's going to happen. And and that's unfortunate. But the success of it was the conversation. And and if we're looking at the end game, is is that dealing with the criminal justice system and and in this case police brutality has been something on the books as since emancipation. So you can go back into. 1865 and 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 you'll see there's a there's a black newspaper in in new orleans and and they're complaining and and they mentioned that they sent a note to congress to help them out because not only are ex-confederate soldiers attacking them but the police are attacking them and and they're just killing them right and so you could read a um an editor in in a black new york new york newspaper in 1886 that posted this before where they're arguing that the police as a as a body kill more people more black people than than anybody right and so this has been a long going fight you've seen police brutality mentioned in in the civil rights for harry truman he he puts out a a thing that the united states needs to do to to bring back civil rights and ending police brutality in there it was actually part of the gop platform in 1963 right so these are it's not just a one-sided approach i know parties flip but it's but it's been there it's been a conversation i think if we can get there right and 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 do it in a way where we have like healthy dialogue and healthy conversation then yeah we you know i mean shameless plug we will win the day right and i think that's the beauty of what cap did is that for two years now as a society we've been forced to wrestle with this unfortunately some people don't want to listen they they want to change the narrative but they still have to be part of the conversation well lewis thanks for coming on the show i appreciate it all right thanks for having me lewis moore is an associate professor of history at grand valley state university specializing in sports, gender, and African-American history, often overlapping those interests in his work. This past year, he published two books, We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality, and I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood. Links to his work are available on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. On the next show, we'll feature more from the symposium speakers. We'll talk with Sarah Fields, professor of communication at the University of Colorado in Denver, about the intersection of law, gender, and sports, and Nola Aga, associate professor of sport management at the University of San Francisco, about the economic impact and distributive justice of public stadium subsidies. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Audioblocks. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu. Find us on Twitter with hashtag allthingsgrinnell, or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. <laughs>